Part 2, Chapter 2 of A Lost Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lost Lady by Willa Siebert Cather. Part 2, Chapter 2. The next afternoon, Neil found Captain Forrester in the bushy little plot he called his rose garden, seated in a stout hickory chair that could be left out in all weather, his two canes beside him. His attention was fixed upon a red block of Colorado sandstone, set on a granite boulder in the middle of the gravel space around which the roses grew. He showed Neil that this was a sundial, and explained it with great pride. Last summer, he said, he sat out here a great deal, with a square board mounted on a post, and marked the length of the shadows by his watch. His friend, Cyrus Dalzell, on one of his visits, took this board away, had the diagram exactly copied on sandstone, and sent it to him, with the column-like boulder that formed its base. I think it's likely Mr. Dalzell hunted around among the mountains a good many mornings before he found a natural formation like that, said the captain. A pillar such as they had in Bible times. It's from the Garden of the Gods. Mr. Dalzell has his summer home up there. The captain sat, with the soles of his boots together, his legs bowed out. Everything about him seemed to have grown heavier and weaker. His face was fatter and smoother, as if the features were running into each other, as when a wax face melts in the heat. An old Panama hat burned yellow by the sun shaded his eyes. His brown hands lay on his knees, the fingers well apart, nerveless. His mustache was the same straw color. Neil remarked to him that it had grown no grayer. The captain touched his cheek with his palm. Mrs. Forrester shaved me for a while. She did it very nicely, but I didn't like to have her do it. Now I use one of these safety razors. I can manage if I take my time. The barber comes over once a week. Mrs. Forrester is expecting you, Neil. She's down in the grove. She goes down there to rest in the hammock. Neil went round the house to the gate that gave into the grove. From the top of the hill he could see the hammock slung between two cottonwoods in the low glade at the farther end, where he had fallen the time he broke his arm. The slender white figure was still, and as he hurried across the grass he saw that a white garden hat lay over her face. He approached quietly, and was just wondering if she were asleep, when he heard a soft, delighted laugh, and with a quick movement she threw off the lace hat through which she had been watching him. He stepped forward and caught her suspended figure, hammock and all, in his arms. How light and alive she was, like a bird caught in a net. If only he could rescue her and carry her off like this, off the earth of sad, inevitable periods, away from age, weariness, adverse fortune. She showed no impatience to be released, but lay laughing up at him with that gleam of something elegantly wild, something fantastic and tantalizing, seemingly so artless, really the most finished artifice. She put her hand under his chin as if he were still a boy. And how handsome he's grown! Isn't the old judge proud of you? He called me up last night and began sputtering, It's only fair to warn you, ma'am, that I've a very handsome boy over here. As if I hadn't known you would be. And now you're a man, and have seen the world. Well, what have you found in it? Nothing so nice as you, Mrs. Forrester. Nonsense. You have sweethearts? Perhaps. Are they pretty? Why, they. Isn't one enough? One is too many. I want you to have half a dozen, and still save the best for us. One would take everything. If you had her, you would not have come home at all. I wonder if you know how we've looked for you. She took his hand and turned a seal ring about on his little finger absently. 
Every night for weeks, when the lights of the train came swinging in down below the meadows, I've said to myself, Neil is coming home. There's that to look forward to. She caught herself, as she always did when she found that she was telling too much, and finished in a playful tone. So you see, you mean a great deal to all of us. Did you find Mr. Forrester? Oh, yes. I had to stop and look at his sundial. She raised herself on her elbow and lowered her voice. Neil, can you understand it? He isn't childish, as some people say, but he will sit and watch that thing hour after hour. How can anybody like to see time visibly devoured? We are all used to seeing clocks go round, but why does he want to see that shadow creep on that stone? Has he changed much? No? I'm glad you feel so. Now tell me about the Adamses and what George is like. Neil dropped on the turf and sat with his back against a tree trunk, answering her rapid questions and watching her while he talked. Of course, she was older. In the brilliant sun of the afternoon, one saw that her skin was no longer like white lilacs. It had the ivory tint of gardenias that have begun to fade. The coil of blue-black hair seemed more than ever too heavy for her head. There were lines, something strained about the corners of her mouth that used to not be there. But the astonishing thing was how these changes could vanish in a moment, be utterly wiped out in a flash of personality, and one forget everything about her except herself. And tell me, Neil, do women really smoke after dinner now with the men? Nice women? I shouldn't like it. It's all very well for actresses, but women can't be attractive if they do everything that men do. I think just now it's the fashion for women to make themselves comfortable before anything else. Mrs. Forrester glanced at him as if he had said something shocking. Ah, that's just it. The two things don't come together. Athletics and going to college and smoking after dinner. Do you like it? Don't men think women to be different from themselves? They used to. Neil laughed. Yes, that was certainly the idea of Mrs. Forrester's generation. Uncle Judge says you don't come to see him any more, as you used to, Mrs. Forrester. He misses it. My dear boy, I haven't been over to town for six weeks. I'm always too tired. We have no horse now, and when I do go, I have to walk. That house! Nothing is ever done there unless I do it, and nothing ever moves unless I move it. That's why I come down here in the afternoon, to get where I can't see the house. I can't keep it up as it should be kept. I'm not strong enough. Oh, yes, Ben helps me. He sweeps and beats the rugs and washes windows, but that doesn't get a house very far. Mrs. Forrester sat up suddenly and pinned on her white hat. We went all the way to Chicago, Neil, to buy that walnut furniture. Couldn't find anything at home big and heavy enough. And if I'd known that one day I'd have to push it about, I would have been more easily satisfied. She rose and shook out her rumpled skirts. They started toward the house, going slowly up the long, grassy undulation between the trees. Don't you miss the marsh? Neil asked suddenly. She glanced away evasively. Not much. I would never have time to go there, and we need the money it pays. And you haven't time to play any more either, Neil. You must hurry and become a successful man. Your uncle is terribly involved. He has been so careless that he's not much better off than we are. Money is a very important thing. Realize that in the beginning. Face it, and don't be ridiculous in the end, like so many of us. They stopped by the gate at the top of the hill, and looked back at the green alleys and the sharp shadows, at the quivering fans of light that seemed to push the trees farther apart and made Elysian fields underneath them. Mrs. Forrester put her white hand with all its rings on Neil's arms. Do you really find a kind of pleasure in coming back to us? That's very unusual, I think. At your age, I wanted to be with the young and gay. It's nice for us, though. 
She looked at him with her rarest smile, one that he had seldom seen on her face, but always remembered, a smile without archness, without gaiety, full of affection and wistfully sad. And the same thing was in her voice when she spoke those quiet words, the sudden quietness of deep feeling. She turned quickly away. They went through the gate and around the house to where the captain sat watching the sunset glory on his roses. His wife touched his shoulder. "'Will you go in now, Mr. Forrester, or shall I bring your coat?' "'I'll go in. Isn't Neil going to stay for dinner?' "'Not this time. He'll come soon, and we'll have a real dinner for him. Will you wait for Mr. Forrester, Neil? I must hurry in and start the fire.' Neil tarried behind and accompanied the captain's slow progress toward the front of the house. He leaned upon two canes, lifting his feet slowly and putting them down firmly and carefully. He looked like an old tree walking. Once up the steps and into the parlor, he sank into his big chair and panted heavily. The first whiff of a fresh cigar seemed to restore him. "'Can I trouble you to mail some letters for me, Neil, as you go by the post office?' He produced them from the breast pocket of his summer coat. "'Let me see whether Mrs. Forrester has anything to go.' Rising, the captain went into the little hall. There by the front door, on a table under the hat-rack, was a scantily draped figure, an Arab or Egyptian slave girl, holding in her hands a large, flat shell from the California coast. Neil remembered noticing that figure the first time he was ever in the house, when Dr. Dennison carried him out through this hallway with his arm in splints. In the days when the foresters had servants, and were sending over to the town several times a day, the letters for the post were always left in this shell. The captain found one now and handed it to Neil. It was addressed to Mr. Francis Bosworth Ellinger, Glenwood Springs, Colorado. For some reason, Neil felt embarrassed and tried to slip the letter quickly into his pocket. The captain, his two canes in one hand, prevented him. He took the pale blue envelope again and held it out at arm's length regarding it. Mrs. Forrester is a fine penman. Have you ever noticed? Always was. If she made me a list of articles to get at the store, I never had to hide it. It was like a copper plate. That's exceptional in a woman, Neil. Neil remembered her hand well enough. He had never seen another in the least like it. Long, thin, angular letters, curiously delicate and curiously bold, looped and laced with strokes fine as a hair and perfectly distinct. Her script looked as if it had been done at a high pitch of speed, the pen driven by a perfectly confident dexterity. Oh, yes, Captain. I'm never able to take any letters from Mrs. Forrester without looking at them. No one could forget her writing. Yes, it's very exceptional. The captain gave him the envelope, and with his canes went slowly toward his big chair. Neil had often wondered just how much the captain knew. Now as he went down the hill, he felt sure that he knew everything, more than anyone else, all there was to know about Marion Forrester. End of Part 2, Chapter 2